Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Liz Trust has resigned. Also, Joe Biden's low approval ratings makes him toxic on the midterm campaign trail. Joining us now to discuss these subjects and more, we have Jamal Thomas. Jamal is the co-host of Fault Lines, a radio show right here on Radio Sputnik. Jamal, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Oh, thank you, man. Always appreciate joining you, too. How are you guys doing this morning? <laughs> We're doing one better than some. Extra- Absolutely. Ex- Ex-Trump Communications Director mocks Liz Truss saying that she lasted 4.1 Scaramucci's. British minister Liz Truss, who announced her resignation Thursday, is being mocked by a former United States official who served less time, even less time than her. Anthony Scaramucci spent 11 days as White House communications director between between July 21st and 31st, 2017. Your thoughts on 4.1 Scaramucci's for Liz Truss, Jamal Thomas. So 4.1 Scaramucci's is a great way to describe it. Um, I think people really need to put into context how bad this is and how bad this looks for the UK. This trust gets in office at a chaotic time for the UK. Um, COVID just hit. They've just come out of Brexit. And all of a sudden now, because of the geopolitics of the UK, they've embroiled themselves into basically a war in Ukraine. Now, all of this is adversely affecting issues of gas, inflation, inflation is through the roof. There's an expectation that um, inflation is going to hit 18.6% next year. And Liz Trust comes in as if she had a mandate. Now, you can say she had a mandate in order to fix stuff, but that's not what she really did. Liz Trust came in and said, I'm going to cut taxes. And you had Kwasi Kwarteng, Chancellor of the Exchequer, under her government, comes in and gives this quote-unquote mini-budget. Now, they were already dealing with inflation. They were already dealing with prices of food and energy going through the roof, so much so they were talking about thousands of Britons not being able to afford the energy costs, even if the energy was available. And Truss's thing is, I am going to pass this mini-budget. And this mini-budget is going to slash taxes for the rich. He's like, whoa, what do you mean slash taxes for the rich? <laughs> I mean, think about it. The money that somebody who gets is rich, they just put it in the bank. So they're not even spending it like that, which means that there is no, let's say, momentum of money in the economy. It's not like a situation where you're creating growth by giving money to the rich who's just going to put it in the bank. You're not creating anything but people who are richer. So she basically presided over, what do they call it, redistribution of wealth to the rich, people who already had the money. The bank saw that and freaked out. I mean, part of the reason the bank freaked out is because, if you think about it, this notion of giving that money to the rich, she's borrowing to do it. So Liz Trust was going to borrow 100, what, 169 billion euros, estimated, over the next few years in order to dump a bunch of money to the rich. But yeah, the, the market's freaked out. Kwasi Kwarteng, when he gave that budget, you could see the pound fall through the roof as he gave the budget. I've never seen anything like it. And the people who are in the UK and the announcers themselves are like, we've never seen anything like this. We've never seen a pound drop precipitously, word by word, that the person was giving. Every time he opened his mouth, the pound would drop. The pound went up on Liz Truss's resignation. Like, I mean, for God's sake, you're talking about conservatives. You're like basically Republicans saying, whoa, what are you doing giving a tax cut? It's the weirdest thing ever. Trust fired Quasi Quarte, made him do the walk of shame back to the country in order to get fired. Um, but it wasn't enough. 
Because at the end of the day, Liz Trust was the one who had the budget. Meaning she was pushing for the stuff. She was the one who was all on board for the stuff. And to make it worse, they were going to do, they were going to slash, let's say, benefits for certain people um, around the issue of home, which was only going to put people out of their homes. And so not only are you presiding over this kind of war economy where you're putting all of this money and weapons and troops and everything in Ukraine, not only are you focusing squarely on Ukraine as your country is taking a massive economic hit where the public doesn't know how it's going to eat or, for that matter, how it's going to not freeze to death in the wintertime. Your focus was basically on how can we give more tax cuts. Shockingly, that didn't go over with other conservatives, given the situation we have at our disposal. And you can look at Marcus and look at the pound. And some people, analysts, are like, look, you should be short in the pound at this moment. It's that bad. And so, yeah, she came in like she had a mandate. She was only elected by Tories. Now the question is now what? Who takes power now? And at this point, the leadership race is going to take place. And I think it's going to be at the end of the month where they're going to have to make a choice on who basically takes power. Um, there is a provision, apparently, where if they get 100 Tory ministers within the next few days, that that person may be able to take the seat. But look, I tell you this, at this point, you've had Boris Johnson fail miserably, you have Liz Trust fail miserably, and the question is going to become who's next? And what is that next person going to do? Meaning, are they going to take policies that were dramatically different than trust, even if they do take power? And that is an open question. That's over question. For that matter, are they even going to be forced to have a general election with the public will basically being so much to get what trust was doing and the level of embarrassment taking place from the standpoint of the Tories and them not being able to get this stuff together? I, I, next, the election is supposed to be in two years. Are they going to have one sooner as a direct result of this? And is there going to be enough public pressure in order to force it? So I, I've never seen anything like it. It is astonishing when you put it in context. But that's basically what's going on. I think right now, Sunak Mordaunt are seen as the main contender who's going to run um, for the prime ministership. Jeremy Hunt was in the previous leadership run with uh, Bush Johnson, but he didn't, of course, he didn't win. Um, he's now the finance person or finance minister, or chancellor of the Exchequer, I think as they call him there. And so we'll see. I mean, at this point, we're trying to see what happens and what takes place. But right now, get your popcorn. She said in her resignation speech, I recognize that given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the conservative party. Uh, to your point, what mandate? And it seems as though she was incredibly, incredibly disconnected, not only from a policy perspective, but she was also just, just totally tone deaf in terms of delivery, in terms of personality, I mean, there seems to have been absolutely no redeeming quality other than the fact that she was appointed by the queen. She's big fat zero. Well, I mean, she might be appointed by the queen, but all doing for equal, the public didn't elect her. I mean, she could say, right. and in that speech, if I'm not mistaken, she said she had a mandate from the Tories or from the Meaning, like well, she, said, uh, she said she had a mandate on which I was elected by the conservative party. That, that's exactly. the quote. And that's the problem. You're elected by the conservative party. We had an entirety of a country. And look, even if you want to judge her by her mandate for the conservative party, they're the ones that kicked her out. <laughs> <laughs> like Tories found her irredeemable himself. But she couldn't even keep her party in line. And they have to keep her own party in line. And like I said, I have no idea what mandate she is referring to 
from the standpoint of the public will. Look, from her standpoint, to be fair, it's shocking that Republicans, or I'm sorry, Tories, didn't love tax cuts. Usually, they would get in line for a tax cut. Look at Bush, look at Trump. They passed these grotesque tax cuts. Every last conservative was like, yes, this is something we love, more money. Well, she did that, and they freaked out. And like I said, she was doing that through barring. But you've got to put that in perspective. The UK spent, I think it was 100 and either 69 or 70 something, 70 something um, billion euros. I'm sorry, pounds, in order to deal with the issue of COVID and everything else. She comes in and spends, what, 169 or something like that herself, let's say $150 billion, I mean, billion pounds herself. And this is on top of the 160 now the previous one spent. And so you have the situation where these prime ministers are spending like drunken idiots. It's one thing if you're doing that for COVID because you're trying to grapple with it and everything else. She was doing it for tax cuts. She was going to have tax cuts using barring. The Bank of England freaked out. I mean, look at it from the perspective of investors. From their standpoint, you have a government that has already spent, let's say, nearly 200 billion euros, uh, 200 billion pounds. This new government comes in and says, okay, we're going to spend another 150 billion pounds. How are you going to do it? We're going to borrow. We're just going to borrow. And you're not even in a situation where the economy is like, we're going to borrow to invest. We're going to borrow for tax cuts. And so you already have a huge amount of money that you've borrowed. The Bank of England looks at this and says, okay, or the uh, public markets look at this and say, well, you are already filling up your book with debt. And it's not like a situation where you're growing. I mean, you're, um, Britain has a, at this point, like an economy like Singapore. Masses of the universe. Britain at one point after the First World War had 51% of the globe. And now they're basically a rising economy as a direct result of a Brexit, COVID, fiscal decisions and policies, um, movements by the Tory party, ineffectiveness of the Labour Party. But all things been equal. This trust couldn't create an earnest and honest justification to borrow that much money with the economy that Britain had at their disposal. They were just going to go into further and further debt. And at this point, you had interest yields going through the roof. The money that they were borrowing cost more. Because if you think about it, the pound versus the dollar. The pound used to be one pound used to be two dollars. Well, now the pound is at parity with the dollar. I think it might have went up a little bit after speech. But the idea of the pound dropping, it basically plummeted. And again, this is a direct result that these guys are looking and saying, well, wait a minute. You're borrowing all this money and you're just giving it to people. And not even people who need it who will put it back into the economy. It's one thing if you say, I'm borrowing this money, I'm going to give it to the poor. And that poor can put it back into the economy in order to get the economy. That's not what she was doing. That's not what she was doing. She was doing the opposite of that. She was making people lives who were poor harder, making people lives richer, richer. But it wasn't even richer because the pound dropped. So money that they need to spend on loans that she wants to get goes up. And especially since the dollar is that strong, well, if Europe or let's say the UK has to buy products from the dollar, let's say like the petrodollar, well, what does it mean when your currency drops in comparison to the dollar? Meaning not only are you paying more on debt, you're also paying more just to buy stuff from the United States, one of your closest allies, including something that you can't do without, which in this case is gas or um, oil. The Telegraph says Joe Biden missing in action on midterms trail amid poor approval ratings. Well, he's toxic. No, but they, they don't want him around. The Democratic Party is heading to losses of biblical proportions, in my opinion. And Joe Biden simply didn't. Well, not only is he trying to destroy the world, he simply didn't keep a single promise that he made. Your thoughts? We got uh, we got two and a half minutes. Your thought, uh, thoughts, Jamal? Uh, all right. So the Joe Biden thing is interesting. Apparently, his approval rating is what, at 42 percent. Um, and when Obama was running, I think Obama was at 44%. And 
And so you had the situation where even though it was a weak president, it was still a popular president that could go out and ratchet it up for the public itself and for the various people who are in first district. I mean, you may have pocket districts that basically love them, in which case you can go out and express that. It's not really true for, Obama, uh, for Joe Biden. Not only do I think he has the stamina for it, I don't think he has the mental capability to even do it. And this notion of Joe Biden rallying up a crowd, I don't see. I mean, can you honestly, contextually in your head, imagine Joe Biden getting out there and rallying up a crowd and doing it in eight different states, 10 different states, 20 different states. Donald Trump was a terror on the campaign stage where he was trying to get various people elected, especially people who want it. But Biden doesn't have that capability. So Biden is not going out there to do it. Um, and in fact, I mean, you know, backfire if he's going out there to do it. I mean, he was meeting with Fetterman, the one who had a stroke. But that means he's going to be a private um, door behind closed sleeves, you come out and make a statement, and then they're going to rush him to wherever he's supposed to be going next to. Um, also, you have the situation where Democrats, if you look at, there was a Harvard-Harris poll that came out recently. The top three immigration from the standpoint of the public, immigration, um, not immigration, the economy or inflation, the economy and immigration. Republicans, all three of them, not do I, I don't have no belief that they're going to do anything substantive or good about those things. By the same token, the public says, this is what our issues are. And the Republicans, it's all three. Democrats, nowhere near it. They're in women's rights, January 6th, and I think it's the last one. But the idea that the public perception of your party is not dealing with the main issues that the public cares about most is appalling. And that's just appalling. It's detrimental to your party's capability of staying in power. You have the House and the Senate, and you most likely will lose both um, as a direct result of not just an image, but an inability to do those things that you basically said you were going to do as president. Yeah, he has problems. It's right, and about one more thing. The public sees it as his fault. That's the other part. Meaning, even if the public doesn't always get what's going on with Ukraine and everything else, when you ask them who's responsible for this, Biden is the person who they point to. Fascinating. Jamal Thomas is a co-host of Fault Lines right here every morning, 7 through 10 a.m. on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Iran rejects claims that it is providing drones for Russia. Also, air alerts go off all over Ukraine Ukraine, as the Russian air offensive takes its toll on the nation's power grid. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Regis Tremblay. Regis is an American citizen living in Crimea. Regis, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you very much for having me. The Washington Post, and I say that, you know, I got to wash my mouth out with soap afterwards, <laughs> reports that the U.S. has viewed wreckage of kamikaze drones Russia used in Ukraine. Such information could prove, prove crucial in helping the United States and its Ukrainian allies better identify and ultimately defeat the unmanned craft. Here's what's in- interesting. All the talk about all of these, you know, the, the wonder weapons and all of the stuff that they're going to send over there that's going to stop the Russians flatten their tracks. And they got this little thing that kind of runs like a moped and it's very low tech and it is giving them holy heck. Your thoughts about the um, now famous kamikaze drones, Regis? Well, um, yeah, the now famous kamikaze drones. First of all, uh, both Iran and Russia have denied emphatically 
that Russia is buying um, drones from Ukraine. So I'm not going to ponder on that at all. I mean, you, However, you mean Iran. You said Ukraine. You mean buying drones from Iran. I'm sorry, Iran. Yeah, Iran. Uh, although Russia and Iran are establishing very, very close relationships, um, that it's got nothing to do with the sale of drones or military equipment either way. Now, the kamikaze drones that Russia uh, has recently deployed en masse, uh, massively, uh, on Ukraine, and they are taking a terrific toll. I have seen video from the Russian Military of Defense Telegram channel showing the effectiveness of these drones. And you can see them uh, actually video, see, video uh, it's on video that you can see them. And the video is taken from probably another drone uh, that is not an attack drone, but for reconnaissance. And you can see these kamikaze drones come screeching in from out of nowhere and boom, tanks being blown up, blown up, um, howitzers being blown up, um, even uh, transport vehicles um, for Ukrainian military. And someone even said maybe United Nations vehicles, but I'm not sure about that. But there's been a massive attack um, ever since the attack on the bridge. Russia has not only been deploying uh, lots and lots of these kamikaze drones, very cheap, very inexpensive, loaded with a powerful munition that, boom, blows up whatever it hits. But Russia has been shelling and hitting Ukraine, many cities, with precision-guided missiles, taking out much of the electri electrical um, infrastructure. Uh, at first, it was reported that Ukraine... Uh, the city of Kiev, Lvov, and others, and then across the country, 30% of the infrastructure, electrical infrastructure, had been destroyed. Russia continues to attack not only electrical power grids, but transportation hubs and other critical uh, vital infrastructures throughout Ukraine. This has been going on consistently since the attack on the bridge. You know, it's ironic. It was, I think, during the Obama administration that drone warfare was introduced to uh, to the battlefield. And now you have the United States through and through the United Nations crying foul that whether it's Russia, whether it's Iran, whoever it is that's manufacturing these things, they're, they're now uh, crying foul. And Russia has warned the U.N., that against investigating its use of drones, uh, saying basically that the United Nations does not have any purview here. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, um, Russia, while it continues to attend and take the abuse that's been leveled upon it at the United Nations in the Security Council, um, Russia will not leave it. But Russia has clearly stated that the United Nation has become a tool of the United States empire. Most people who can look at that objectively understand that. The same thing with the International Atomic Energy Commission, uh, part of the United Nations. They did a terrible, uh, erroneous report 
on the attacks on the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. Uh, uh, they said it was being attacked, but they couldn't tell where. Well, a Boy Scout with a compass could tell where those those shells were coming from. And so um, the, Russia doesn't put a whole lot of stock and certainly no trust right now in anything coming from the United Nations. Let me throw something else at you. I always like to challenge a basic premise. The U.S. says, hey, Iran's giving uh, or selling or providing some kind of way drones for um, for Russia. The U.S. has given like every weapon in the world to Ukraine. If Iran was providing drones, if they were providing drones, missiles, everything completely free to Russia, what right does the U.S. have to say, we're going to give Ukraine everything, missiles and high Mars, my Mars, whatever we can come up with, we're giving it to Ukraine. Oh, you better not even give a butter knife to Russia because you're wrong. Once again, it's that imperial hubris that says we can do anything we want. Oh, wait a minute. Look, you're violating the rules that we made up. I don't think Russia's listening anyway, and I don't think they care. Your thoughts? No, no. You said it more eloquently than I could have. Russia doesn't care. Putin, and especially Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, has said, we basically don't care what, what the United States thinks or says. We're done with it. We're moving east. And that message has it rang loud and clear and repeatedly in the last couple of weeks. So uh, you're exactly right. It, the, it, this imperial hubris uh, is disgusting and it's laughable when, when, as you said, the United States has poured in $60 billion worth of money and weapons into Ukraine, uh, ready to give them more billions of dollars. And yet they, they, they cry foul when it's alleged that Iran or somebody else is giving Russia military hardware, um, you know, it, it's, it's laughable. That's all I can say. It's just laughable. It's ridiculous. And it's more of the same kind of lies, turning everything around, uh, the truth from the lies, and then that is spread all over the Western world. Um, it's disgusting, really. It's <laughs> it's disgusting to say the least. And so talk a bit about these uh, air alerts that are being activated uh, all across the Ukraine and the, and the impact that that's having on the psyche of Ukrainians. Well, uh, I'm thankful that you, you asked that question because in my mind and in the minds of Russians, and obje objective observers and analysts, wherever they are in the United States or elsewhere, um, something big is about to happen. It is a fact. Kiev admitted it. Kiev has admitted that they are telling all of their cities across Ukraine to prepare for air raids, attacks, and telling their people to pay attention to the air alerts uh, when the sirens go to go to the bomb shelters or whatever shelters they have, uh, because Russia has been, in the last couple of weeks, been daily, nightly, shelling and hitting various points, cities across Ukraine with precision-guided missiles. What does this mean, I think, in, in the larger picture of this war? Well, 
the new uh, general commander on the ground, he's affectionately known as General Armageddon. And if you've seen pictures of this man, he's somebody I would not want to sit across the table from when, when he's angry. Obviously, this military, special military operation has shifted in to another gear that maybe was Russia's plan B or C, but it's definite that it's shifted into this. He now is in command of everything on the battlefield, on the ground and in the air and in space. And these extra 300,000 troops that have been deployed are ready. Many of them have already been deployed to the front line in Zaporozhye, a critical uh, city because of the nuclear power plant in, in Kherson, where this uh, large Ukrainian off offensive is supposed to take place. These extra 20 or 30,000 troops that the Ukraine has sent there are reservists, poorly trained, sent to the front line to get grinded up like in a meat grinder. And this is what is happening to these poor people. They didn't want to go there. And it's been reported that behind these reservists are special Ukrainian troops that will shoot and kill anybody that tries to run away or defect. And so I think that these air alerts and air raids that Kiev has said are happening all over the country and to take seriously, given the movement on the ground and the deployment of these 300,000 troops all, align, all along the line of contact says to me that Russia is about to make a massive, massive assault on the remaining troops and to recapture not only territory that has been lost, but people are now speculating that Russia will go all the way to Kiev and Lvov and all the way down to Odessa and denazify the government and establish uh, a new government that will meet Russia's main objectives to de de demilitarize, denazify, create a neutral Ukraine that is not and never will be part of NATO. This is what I think is about to happen in the next week, 10 days, two weeks, but not much longer than that. It's significant. We only got about a minute left. I did want to ask you this. You know, times are kind of hard. There's cold water and lack of food in the EU. And uh, how's the situation? And we only got about one minute. But how's the situation as far as food and what's on your shelves and the cost of energy and things of that nature in, 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 uh, in Crimea where you live? We, we are not feeling any of that pain in, in Crimea or anywhere in Russia. Prices have stabilized. Uh, the price of gas and energy is what it's always been. It's very cheap here because Russia has an abundance. Uh, the shelves in the grocery stores and in the markets, and there are many, many little markets and large outdoor markets here in Crimea and across Russia that are full of fresh vegetables and fruit and meat and chicken and eggs and everything you need. Uh, that We are lacking nothing here. And the, all this talk of recession and economic collapse in the West Russia is safe and completely sustainable. It needs nothing now from the West. That's the situation here on the ground.
Thank you very much. Regis Trembley is an American citizen living in a Crimea. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Boston University has allegedly created a deadly COVID strain that has caught the attention of the U.S. government. Also, we discuss why the U.S. government is preventing a real investigation of the origins of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Joining us to discuss this and more, we've got Steve Poikin, and he's a national organizer for Action for Assange and host of Slow News Day on Rockfin. That's R-O-K-F-I-N, rockfin.com. Slow News Days on Monday through Friday. Uh, what's the Pacific time there, Steve? 7 to 10. 7 to 10 a.m. Steve, welcome back to the Critical Hour and that specific time. Yes, thank you, and it's good to be back. Okay, good news. In Boston University has created a new COVID story, reportedly created a new COVID strain with 80% death rate following a set of linked experiments that were first to have believed to have sparked the global epidemic in China. Researchers at Boston University have claimed to develop a new COVID strain with an 80% death rate. According to Fox News, the variant, a combination of Omicron and the original virus in, in Wuhan, killed 80% of the mice infected with it. Oh, boy. And I'm sure they probably said, hey, well, we don't not do anything with these mice. Let's take them home and let them run around a while. Your thoughts? Nothing. uh, No problem here, Steve. Nothing dangerous here. Sounds like good work. It's going to keep us all safe. Steve Poikinen. I I don't know if it was intentional or not, but when you said good news, (laughs) I heard the professor from Futurama, um, the Matt Groening cartoon, Simpsons creator, who would always say good news, everyone, and then tell them some horrific stuff. Uh, and it would be, you know, catastrophic end of the world or galaxy destroying kind of nonsense. And we're at Boston University. What I enjoy about this story is the rush to be like, no, 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 no. It's totally not gain of function because what they did was they took existing stuff and put it together and then found out that it's more deadly. So it's totally not that, even though it is. <laughs> and it's, it's they had they just decided on their own how could we make it a little bit weirder in the world i guess things were uh becoming too calm people were starting to get a little bit of certainty back find their feet realize how much the price of milk was and then all of a sudden oh look we uh we just you know put some covid strains together that kill 80 percent of the mice we give it to no big deal this just makes me wonder, <laughs> well, it makes me wonder a lot of things, but we were told that, of course, this was evil China that created COVID and they're trying to take over the world. So this just tells me that it's, that it's Boston University and it's American universities that are causing these problems, because why would you create something, why would you take a, a COVID virus as deadly and as problematic as it has been, combine it with other strains to make it worse. What was the theory? What what was the, the premise that you were trying to prove? Uh, I, okay, according to them, 
according to them, they were trying to see what would happen if you took uh, what was thought to be in Omicron a less virulent, more transmissive strain that in and of in itself kind of acted as an inoculant. At least that's the way that a lot of people, including Fauci and Walensky and Bill Gates, eventually all, you know, said out loud on camera in front of people. Um, They were trying to see if there was any sort of mortality reduction if they combined the two. Turns out with the original Wuhan strain, according to them, 100% of the mice that had it died, 80% of the mice that got this died. So the people who released the study did the experiment are tap dancing because they're calling it a victory uh, rather than them creating a new uh, data. And by the way, the study doesn't say anything about uh, how transmissible or potent the uh, their creation is to humans. We don't know. We're, we're going to find out the hard way, I imagine. Um, but yeah, they're calling it a victory. And, and that's why they thought they were doing a good let me give you another let me give let me throw out another idea. What if they were actually trying to figure out a way to make it more stable so that they then will make it more controllable so that they would be able to use it uh, as they deemed necessary. And what they found out was, oh, it kills everybody in the room. Well, along the way, over the last couple of years, uh, especially since the Ukraine conflict kicked off, we've found that the U.S. has financed and helped set up and been a part of a number of biological weapons labs and research labs and quote-unquote health facilities uh, all, all over the world. And this is in the nature of the bioweapons defense program to do. It's under their purview. It wouldn't be out of bounds to uh, include that in your overall speculation. Um, I would also suggest that from a, a research grant perspective, if you're Boston University, uh, you would have realized over the course of the last two years that if you have taking the injections, you're a lifetime customer. And so why would you not want to then, as you're suggesting, stabilize something that's going to become a part of uh, the routine vaccination cycle for in perpetuity? CDC just voted to, to uh, do that with children today. So, I mean, it's becoming part of the program anyway. It kind of seems to me like it serves a lot of purposes, one of them being getting ahead of the curve, or sorry, get ahead of the curve uh, on the next rollout of new products. Professor Jeffrey Sachs led a uh, Lancet COVID-19 commission um, looking into the origins of of COVID. And he says he is pretty convinced that COVID-19 came out of U.S. lab biotechnology and warns there's dangerous virus research taking place without public oversight I think that was the first part of this segment. But here's the thing. I, I've, I've watched him. I've, I've listened to him. One of the things that's over that's very convincing to him and me is that when he went to the CDC, when he went to the U.S. government, they refused to give him information. He had people who were on his Lancet commission who were pushing back, who were uncooperative. One of them attacked him and he found out that they were the people who were involved in this gain of a function research, but they didn't, they were supposedly on his commission researching the gain of function research 
and the origin of, of uh, the origin of COVID, and they didn't tell him that they were involved in the gain of function research and the origin of COVID. Just a tad bit suspicious, Steve. Well, that's correct. And at no point did they disclose in any of the papers that they had significant conflicts of interest. This is all stuff the media had to uncover, independent media had to uncover. Um, Jeffrey Sachs was at the Lancet when a woman named Brooke Jackson came forward who worked for a company called Ventavia that was contracted by Pfizer to do some clinical trials. And she had substantial information that the test results were being manipulated, that Pfizer had gone out of their way to obfuscate data, basically treat uh, their their clinical trials like the OPCW report. Um, to where uh, there's things that are omitted, there's people who are discluded from the conversation, there's significant leverage to uh, print the predetermined conclusion, and then that's effectively what happens. Um, this has gone on, I, and, and I'm glad Jeffrey Sachs is, you know, you know, finally coming forward and letting this information become more public than it has been. Um, I, but I think that has more to do with uh, the the people who are looking around and seeing the 45 to 52% increase in all-cause mortality over the last two years and trying to figure out how they're going to have to cover their behind later. Well, and to that point, the in the article, federal government is not happy with Boston University's lab-made COVID strain, quote, the uh, National Institute for of Allergy and Infective Diseases, which partially funded the study, said it was unaware of the scope of the research until the mail, the the mail <laughs> being the um, Daily Mail, uh, the Daily Mail newspaper broke the story. So they now are trying to foster some level of plausible deniability when, in fact, it seems as though I would think you have to submit your protocols and have your protocols approved, especially when it's involving infectious diseases. I, you would think, but I, ultimately what, uh, what NAIAD is showing is that they have, uh, I guess, uh, plausible, um, <clears throat> I don't know, culpability, um, <laughs> plausible gullibility, uh, plausible naivety, plausible incompetence. Um, if you're, if you're funding a study, uh, and you're Brett Favre, if you're funding a gym and you're Brett Favre, people try to destroy you. If you're an arm of the U S government that effectively helps approve all kinds of products that people then use to try to make themselves better, you would think there would be at least the same level of scrutiny. But in this case, most people get so pushed away or shut out called, uh, um, you know, crackpots or whatever that uh, that it takes until it's uh, there's a an actual body count before people start to notice. Unfortunately, now, one of the things that I find um, interesting from Dr. Sachs is that his study shows that at the very beginning, the scientists at the highest levels were saying literally. We think this was made in a lab. 80-20, it was made in a lab. 70-30, they were sending emails to Dr. Fauci saying, there's just no way this occurs in nature. 
And at that same time, Dr. Fauci was saying, oh, no, that would be a crazy conspiracy theorist to think it was made in a lab. And days after telling Dr. Fauci, man, it looks like it was made in a lab, they started writing papers that said, eh, yeah, it came from a bat in a wet mar. That would be absurd. It, it, it kind of gives you an idea that maybe they weren't being completely on the up and up with us, uh, Steve. I, I would not be surprised, Garland and Wilmer, if in the next couple of months we heard about uh, an inclusivity project around the Boston University where they've opened up a partnership program so that people in Boston could experience what a wet market in, say, the Wuhan province of China was like uh, right across the Charles River there from, from the school. Uh, and then conveniently, there will be some subsequent news reports about an outbreak of a combination, you know, Wuhan and Omicron strain, uh, because somebody's bat soup got out of hand. Cod soup. They got a lot of cod up there. This cod is going to be come, comes from either cod or some kind of a shellfish. I'm thinking. It's a special well, pangolin chowder that they had brought in. <laughs> Terrible. I'm sorry, I shouldn't even suggest it, but yeah, you know. Well, it'll be very interesting to see where this thing goes within the next couple of weeks, because if, if, if there's radio silence on this thing, I think that'll give us an indication that the, that the tentacles run a lot deeper than we were originally uh, uh, thinking. Go ahead, Garland. We're out. Tentacles, or in this case, the uh, what do they call it? The fern cleavage site, because that kind of acts as the tentacles for. And in fact, the fern cleavage site is the thing that they all said, "Gee, this could never occur uh, occur in nature." Where is it occurring? Oh, that's right. The gain of function is specifically applying cleavage, uh, fern cleavage sites. Two uh, SARS-CoV-2 viruses. Eh, you know, it's just a, a very strange coincidence. Steve Porkinen is a national organizer for Action for Assange, and he is the host of Slow News Day, which is on 7 a.m. to 10 a.m., Monday through Friday, that specific time, on rockfin.com, R-O-K-F-I-N.com, forward slash Slow News Day. Check out Steve Porkin and my man Pasta doing lots of fun stuff. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. John Bolton's regime change plan for Russia is based on an absurd foundation. Also, Scott Ritter has written several pieces about the threat of nuclear war. Joining us to discuss these articles, we have Dr. Linwood Tawheed. He's the Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Missouri at Kansas City. Dr. Tawheed, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you, sir. John Bolton's Russia regime change fantasy has little basis in reality. The neoconservative hawk is promoting his vision of revolution in Russia. Fortunately for the world, says Scott Ritter, his ideas are based on fiction. Your thought, Dr. Tawheed? Well, I think they are they are very dangerous. I mean, we, we, we have John Bolton, who uh, goes back a long way, but most recently his official position was in the Trump White House. And uh, in the Trump White House, he brought the the Trump doctrine closer and closer to to uh, or at least he attempted to bring it closer and closer to to war in various places, or Iran being being in, uh, one in particular. 
uh, he was not listened to in the Trump White House. But but apparently, at least according to Scott Ritter, he's getting some 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 mileage within the Biden White House, even though the Bidens are are wanting to to, to maintain a distance from him. And in fact, uh, Ritter is saying that the distancing is actually an advantage because Bolton can say things that that Biden is thinking without having Biden having to take uh, credit or, or or blame for them. And so I think this is this is very dangerous when you have someone like a John Bolton who has admitted that not only was he involved in coups, uh, successful, some successful and some unsuccessful in, in South America, but but that this is uh, that he he has uh, uh, advocated for quote regime change in Russia, and by that he doesn't just mean eliminating Putin; he means all of the collective leadership in Russia needs to go uh, in order to to subdue Russia into being a vassal of the West. And so recent polling shows us that I think the that President Putin's favorability rating in Russia is 84 or 86%. So John Bolton is advocating the removal of a very, very, very popular president. And when you look at Joe Biden's ratings in the 30s, that gives you some idea of how popular uh, uh, President Putin is. Bolton is also the guy, I believe, who said to Kim Jong-un during one of the negotiating um, uh, uh, periods uh, with with Donald Trump that he told Kim Jong-un, you don't want to go the way of Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, so, so, so Bolton uh, is is infamous for making these kinds of comments, uh, laying this kind of groundwork, which, to your point, is incredibly, credibly dangerous, if not perilous, because if President Xi Jinping made a speech at his last uh, Congress and said, "We got to get rid of Joe Biden," oh man, we'd be sending missiles into. Uh, into China right now. Yes, and and I, I think I think what's going on here is the is a is a a struggle in the Biden administration between the neocons and the neolibs. Uh, neocons want to dominate uh, militarily. Neolibs want to dominate financially. Unfortunately for the neolib and the neolib policy from the Biden administration, the sanctions against Russia has not done what what uh, they thought it would do in in harming Russia and damaging the economy and eventually, of course, getting rid of Putin, because that's what Joe Biden said that uh, must happen, uh, that Putin must go. That program on the neolib side has not worked. And so that actually gives the only alternative, if you will, um, at least the only only alternative to to domination to the neocons. So even though uh, you know you, you find someone like Victoria Nuland who can play both sides, uh, still in the Biden administration, uh, John Bolton's get, getting the opportunity to speak out and uh, kind of resonates. And I think the option that might be that that, that the Biden administration may see that's available to them since their first option of financial collapse didn't work. Let me, uh, uh, I think this is very dangerous to go, go back and forth in the, with e- either of these neos, libs or cons. 
Let me ask you this, Dr. Tawheed. You know, things have their day and then they're gone. You know, it's Keynesian economics and then that washes ashore in the 70s. Of course, we've got neoliberalism economically, which one could argue right now it is on its way. You know, it's circling the drain. Well, to me, when I look at the uh, dramatic eras, or they're not errors because they're not mistakes. They're intentional things that the neocons are doing and the disastrous outcome. I suspect that the days the neocons have ascended to full power. They were getting there with the Bush people, Obama there, now Biden there in full power. I suspect that if and when we make it through this particular time, that the days of power of the neocons are numbered also in the same way that these other things have washed ashore. The neoconservatives, um, their time is their days are numbered. I mean, as far as having power, your thoughts on that? Well, I think I think when you when you are now promoting the possibility of nuclear war, and and this is this is uh, you know the first the first narrative is that is that Putin is threatening nucle- nuclear war. And uh, if uh, the mainstream media pushes that narrative, then then the hope, I guess, uh, is that you would get the population to 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 be for uh, nuclear war uh, before uh, Putin initiates his war. And so you get someone like Zelensky coming out and asking for a preemptive nuclear strike on Russia. Uh, that narrative uh, does certainly doesn't sit very well for ordinary Europeans who would be. Uh, you know the 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 ground zero for any nuclear warfare, uh, but their leadership, of course, is is I think uh, boxing themselves into a hole. And Ritter has used the the term mad mad madmen theory, and I think that that this this discussion has to be seen in that way. It's certainly going to be seen by the the near victims of any nuclear war with Russia, uh, which would be the Europeans. And the question is, what are Europeans going to do to 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 move this um, uh, possibility off the off the off the table? Uh, if that's done, then of course that is a movement against the neoconservative idea of of, of, of uh, the violent overthrow of governments, regime change, and and doing so by by uh, disastrous means. So I think yes, I, I think there has to be a response. Not only to the neoliberal sanctions that's causing increases in energy costs and will intensify uh, uh, poverty and so forth in Europe, but also the neocon strategy, which which will in fact lead to the to the physical destruction of Europe. Uh, both of these, I think, uh, the, the end, end games will be these both is being played out uh, in in Europe. Uh, NATO is driving this, but but there is certainly a disconnect between NATO. And, and the European and the European public, it, it hasn't. I don't think it's gotten in, into the U.S. as much because we're a long way from Russia. And uh, you know, in in many wars, you know, wars with the U that the U.S. has been involved in have not uh, come to uh, this part of, of of the world for a long time. The last time that happened was the Civil War, and so there's really no memory in the U.S. of of of, uh, of warfare being on this on this shore. You know, you're absolutely right, but and, and I'm I'm glad you said that because you're the perfect person, I think, to respond to this point. We are protected by oceans on the east and the west, as well as the Gulf of Mexico to the south, and then we've got Canada to the north. But what I think the difference between the previous times of conflict and now 
is the economic impact that this conflict is having at home. And the fact that because we have moved away from an industrialized economy to a financialized economy, and we hardly make anything in this country, folks aren't hearing the missiles fly and feeling the impact of the bullets, but their wallets are getting blown up. Right, right. Michael Hudson, my colleague, says that, you know, finance is war by other means. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, it, it may be it may be that uh, the, the idea of physical war is is out of the minds of, of, of Americans. Um, you know, it, 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 you know, we can look back to Vietnam and the uh, the uh, the performance by journalists who were moving with troops in, in, in Vietnam theater and bringing back videos on the screens of disaster that that, of course, energized the anti-war movement that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, but but the financial process, the financial disaster, the inflation, uh, the increase in energy costs and so forth, that's certainly going to come uh, and, and hit the U.S. And it, it, it already is, of course. It's not as, as bad as, it's, as it is in Europe and probably not as bad as it's going to be, but it is hurting the wallets, and that is certainly part of Joe Biden's uh, 30 or 40 percent popularity, and it's going to have a tremendous effect on the midterm elections uh, in, in, uh, in less than a month. Uh, Scott Ritter's article, Nuclear High Noon in Europe, and he goes on to talk about how Monday, October 17th, NATO kicked off Operation Steadfast Noon, which is training to to wage nuclear war against Russia. And he says the the reader should let that sink in for a moment. The reality, Dr. Tawheed, is— they it's an it's a practice for Armageddon. It's let's practice how we destroy all life on the earth. I, I don't think it's a good idea to practice that, Dr. Tawheed. Well, well, one well, yeah, I think your listeners and people should 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 uh, know that uh, after World War Two, the U.S. was the only country that had nuclear weapons. They had used them twice in Japan. And there was a plan that was drawn up, and President Truman at the time approved of the plan of using nuclear weapons to destroy Russia, uh, send nuclear nuclear weapons uh, bombs uh, to 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 bomb about 300 different locations on the, on in in Russia, in the country of Russia. This was after World War II. Now, now Russia achieved nuclear weapons shortly after that, so that plan had to be put on hold because it was understanding that if you, if you started that 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 bombing, then uh, Russia could retaliate. But there was a plan in place to uh, to invade, well, not to invade, to destroy, to wipe Russia off the map, uh, a, a country that had been an ally. Uh, these nuclear war games are are an extension of that. There are plans for how to to walk, to, to to wipe Russia off the map. Of course, the Russians also have plans of how to to wipe Europe and the U.S. off the map. Uh, during the Cold War, this was called mutually assured destruction, MAD, MAD, and it was it was viewed as it would be mad, it would be insane for any side to begin a nuclear war. Uh, because it would it would uh, assure the destruction of both sides. Uh, what what Scott Ritter has has brought up is that we 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 don't have mad anymore. We just have mad men <laughs> who I, I apparently think that you can survive a nuclear war, or in fact uh, that the, the rhetoric uh, you won't really end up in nuclear war, but the rhetoric must be good for the economy of the military industrial complex for the weapons manufacturers. So let's continue the weapon the the, the rhetoric. Although we hope we never get to 
a point. So it, it, it's almost bluffing on each side, but a small mistake can actually start this process going. And I think it's important, This uh, Minister Farrakhan once said, never underestimate the blindness that attends arrogance. And so to Garland's point, I think the folks on the U.S. side that are engaged in these games are also blinded by the concepts of American exceptionalism and manifest destiny and all that other kind of foolishness that makes them believe that somehow they can start the nuclear conflict and those radioactive winds will not blow into our country. Yes, yes. I I thought you were going to go with uh, President Obama's statement about Biden that never uh, (laughs) underestimate Joe Biden's ability to F things up. (laughs) Uh, we're certainly we're certainly moving in that direction Uh, and um, and uh, you know i I guess give obama credit he really knew joe biden more than uh, joe biden claims to know about vladimir putin so dr lynn woodtaw he is is an associate professor of economics at the university of missouri at kansas city you're listening to the critical hour on radio sputnik i'm your host garland nixon with my co-host dr wilmer leon there's another hour on the other side stay tuned We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Germany's embassy seems to have played a significant role in fomenting unrest in Iran. Also, Iran backs the Saudi reduction of oil output in the face of U.S. pressure. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have Laith Marouf. Laith is a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for having me. You know, before we get on there, the, on to those, there's a couple of stories that I, I'd like to touch on. One, one is Uday Atamimi. Um, he is a Palestinian youth. He was involved in several gunfights. And I understand there's a video and there's new information about. And uh, maybe you can fill us in on that, Laith. Yes, we spoke about this last week uh, on this show. Uh, Uday Atamimi, at the time, his name was not known. He uh, attacked an Israeli checkpoint in the West Bank, uh, killing an Israeli soldier and wounding a couple. It was a very brazen uh, action and uh, was caught on tel- on video. Uh, we saw all these tens of Israeli soldiers just running away from the firefight. He's been on the run for 11 days uh, and, uh, m- you know, inspiring much of the West Bank uh, and Palestinians around the world in, in that time. Is where, where uh, you know, because the original video, for instance, had uh, you could see that he's bald headed, and all these youth across the West Bank just shaved their head to make it harder for him to be caught. Well, he decided to go down guns blazing. He attacked an Israeli uh, settlement in the, the West Bank, a colony, and at the entrance of the colony, um, you know, uh, he got hit tens of times. The video is uh, shocking, but also, you know, inspiring to see this uh, Palestinian youth firing to the last bullet in his gun uh, and and taking on the Jewish white supremacist colonists right on, head on, uh, to the last breath. He is 
Now the whole West Bank is on strike and uh, the population is out on the street. This uh, is uh, leading us to another trigger that uh, is going to increase. Now more and more people are going to carry the banner of Oday Tamimi and uh, a lot of youth are going to copy that image. There's been blessings coming from Hezbollah in Lebanon, from Ansarullah in Yemen, uh, from uh, the churches in Palestine, the uh, Archbishop uh, Hanna Atallah of uh, the Orthodox Church came out in a statement, um, you know, glorifying this martyr and commemorating his sacrifice to the population and their liberation of Palestine. To the point that you've just made, do you see this as being not only shaved heads and other signs uh of um, of support, but do you see more youth picking up arms? Is this could this be the spark of youth picking up arms? Because what we know in a lot of situations, in a lot of resistance movements, it's when the students move to the front line that the enemy uh, really has a problem on their hands. Yes, this is what is freaking out the Zionists and the collaborationist Palestinian Authority security forces because we're talking about youth that are 16, 17, 18, 19 years old that are using their own money to buy weapons off the black market, mainly weapons from the Israeli soldiers who are selling their own weapons to, to, to smoke some crack. Uh, and they basically, what what this means is that there is no hierarchy to be uh, infiltrated. The, uh, this is not the traditional, uh, you know, uh, formations of parties. This is small cells, uh, friends, high school and university uh, students that are very closely knit, that are uh, going out and performing these brave actions of resistance against the colony. Um, you know, this is why, for instance, right now the Palestinian Authority, uh, the security forces of the Palestinian Authority have been accused of killing by torture uh, one of the brothers of uh, the Palestinian youth uh, resistors in Nablus that got killed last week. Um, and uh, so what does this mean that even the Palestinian Authority, uh, you know, security forces that are collaborating with the Israelis are not able to extract information from these youth and are having to resort to torture to death. And they are not yet able to crack that. You know, Leith, the first thing that comes to mind and, that you know, there were people that, that will even criticize us for talking about this on the show. But here's the first thing that comes to my mind. What people said for years, you remember this, the Palestinians need a Palestinian Gandhi. Why? If only they would be peaceful and then the Israelis would work with them and voila, everything would work, right? And if you remember, they did these peaceful marches where I think it was every Friday or something, completely peaceful. And the Israelis starting sh started shooting people's legs off. Then they were shooting Members of the press, they were shooting um, people who were, uh, you know, helping uh, the injured. They're shooting all of these people. And I I'm sure that sent the message to the Palestinians, you know, that was all a lie. You were just told to be peaceful because that way you'd be like easier to shoot because you wouldn't be moving around as much. And now 
when you attack the peaceful um, protesters, this type of reaction is inevitable. Your thoughts, Laith? Oh, yeah. The Palestinians have uh, birthed, uh, you know, tens and hundreds of Gandhis and Mandela's uh, over the 100-year struggle for the liberation of Palestine since the British occupation in World War One. In fact, you know, the beginnings of the Palestinian uprising in the 1930s before the creation of the Zionist colony, the great strike of Palestine in 1936 and, and the repression, the violent repression and tens and hundreds of killed under the uh, auspices of the British occupation, uh, you know, that's kind of the cycle that the Palestinians have been going through. They go for, you know, they do all this nonviolent uh, demonstration and speak about rights and human rights and international law, and they get squashed. And then the, the response is, you know, becomes a militarized resistance. And then again, another cycle of peaceful resistance and then another cycle. And we've been going on now for 100 years. Uh, you know, there is no nation on this planet that can teach humanity more about what is liberation, what is resistance than the Palestinian people that have been steadfastly uh, producing and birthing these beautiful humans uh, that resist and refuse to be subjugated by white supremacy for 100 years with the weight of the world on top of their soldiers, their shoulders. Hamas delegation to visit Syria after shunning Assad for years. This is from Reuters, so uh, the tone may be a bit off. Hamas leaders will visit uh, uh, are visiting will visit in Syria yesterday, in a move by the uh, uh, by Hamas uh, to rebuild ties. Talk about the significance uh, of this of this visit. Well, this is a dramatic point in the last 10 years that we saw in the struggle in and the war on Syria and this schism that happened because Hamas got blinded at the beginning of the Arab autumn um, and dragged into the net of uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, led by Turkey and Qatar, who were trying to, uh, on behalf of the Americans, uh, rearrange the the Arab world into a fiefdoms of Muslim brotherhoods. Unfortunately, at that time, Hamas made the mistake of uh, falling for this trap and joined on the side of the United States and the Wahhabi death squads that, uh, you know, attacked Syria and betrayed by that move, uh, Syria, who has been the greatest contributor to Palestinian resistance in the last uh, 80 years. Uh, and so uh, right now, this, this uh, you know, is a accumulation of two uh, efforts. One is the effort by the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, who uh, tried for the last three years slowly to make the changes and make uh, the, the uh, leadership of Hamas understand that what needs to happen. And also, uh, you know, the efforts of the Algerian state who brought in all the Palestinian factions into Algiers uh, last week and created a, uh, a a new unity within Palestinian movements. So it's, this was a multi-Palestinian party 
delegation led by the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, the images and the videos of uh, this delegation have uh, right now rocked the whole Arabic world. Uh, there's hope within uh, the Palestinian peoples and the Arab peoples in general for a, uh, deta- a, a new page to be opened in this uh, relation between Syria and Hamas. Uh, an interesting article, Iraq rejects U.S. threats, back Saudis on oil project, project, production. The U.S. struggles to bring influence to bear with Mideast allies. Uh, Iraq's foreign minister doubled down on supporting OPEC and the Saudis, saying the nation has to protect its interests. It's interesting. These countries that would have never dreamed of doing such a thing before are now saying we're sticking together against the U.S. empire. It seems like the power of the U.S. empire is CTD, as George Carlin would say, circling the drain. <laughs> Lathe. Your thoughts on this story? Well, it's going to be the greatest show on earth, the collapse of Anglo-imperialism. Look at what's happening in the United Kingdom just now, the the the, the, the circus of the resignation of uh, the prime minister trusts after 40-somewhat days, the shortest-lived prime minister. Uh, you know, Iraq right now has a new prime minister and a new president, and both of them are not... And specifically, the prime minister is in no shape or form related and or connected to the American occupation and or uh, corruption. So we will be seeing a new Iraq. And this is a very, uh, you know, uh, courageous statement, especially that Iraq is still under occupation uh, with uh, multiple American bases and uh, we continuing uh, looting of the Syrian resources through Iraq. So, you know, the prime minister doesn't have real control over the whole territory of Iraq. And he's speaking in such language that tells you that there is clearly uh, seismic changes happening across uh, Western Asia uh, and much of the world. Uh, but uh, because uh, a Western Asia is a is a is a flaming fault line on global scale. It is always one of the best indicators of uh, global balance of power. And in this case, America is going to provide it in the next, uh, you know, two, three, four years with the greatest show on earth, uh, the collapse of the most powerful empire the humanity has ever seen. We have just about a minute and 15 left. Does do, do moves like this, Iraq rejecting U.S. threats and backing the Saudis, does this also show that uh, displays such as the Abraham Accords aren't going to have the lasting impact that we were told they would have uh, during the Trump administration? It was a joke from day one. You know, I mean, those were actually the pangs of a dying empire to attempt to forcefully change the course of history. The, the, the arrogance uh, that Trump and uh, Kushner had to think that they can achieve something that uh, the Crusaders couldn't achieve and uh, the Romans that couldn't achieve. Um, and now, of course, we know that was just temporary because look, uh, the Saudis and the Emiratis and so on and the Bahrainis that have uh, pushed for this Abraham Accord uh, signing are just puppets that go with the wind. 
that's what puppets are. That's what house slaves do. They don't care who is their master as long as they're a master. And in this situation, the house slaves are jumping to a safer master. Uh, they're wavering. Uh, suddenly, they can maybe feel what the field slaves have, uh, have felt for a hundred years. Latham Roof is a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The U.S. empire is using lawfare to go after anti-imperialist activists and journalists such as Julian Assange, Stephen Donziger, and Alex Saab. Joining us to discuss this, we have Dan Kavalik. He's a writer. He's an author. He's a lawyer. He's a human rights activist and all that stuff. Dan Kavalik, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. The Alliance for Global Justice says... It is now a year since the culmination of a 16-month-long Suedo legal process which shredded the facade of the legal system in the micro-archipelago 10 island state, which makes up the Republic of Cape Verde. I know you're working on this case. What do we need to know about the Alex Saab case, Dan Kavali? Well, first of all, uh, it's important to know that he uh, was a Venezuelan diplomat, and he was on a diplomatic uh, mission. Uh, to Iran to try to negotiate deals for food and medicine for the Venezuelan people when his plane was forced to land in Cabo Verde. And he was arrested uh, without warrant. Um, And he was detained on Cabo Verde for about a year or so. And uh, then extradited to the U.S., even though Cabo Verde and the U.S. have no extradition treaty. And he's now been sitting in a jail in Miami uh, for about a year. And um, all of this, of course, is against international law because he was a diplomat. And he's being treated the way he is because he was able to evade U.S. sanctions, which have been denying the Venezuelan people food and medicine for years. It's interesting, this piece, the Alex Saab case, one year from the kidnapping they say that the United States wanted him and that uh, diplomatic immunity, inviolability, in, nor the 61 Vienna Convention, nor the U.S.'s own Diplomatic Relations Act or the niceties of Cape Verdean law were going to prevent the United States from getting him. So on the one hand, when we have people like Tony Blinken, who on Monday is talking about the United States has to be at the table so that the rules can be enforced. Without the rules being enforced, this will just be uh, the Wild West. We have the United States uh, making sure that it's the Wild West. Yes. Well, and that's always the case, isn't it? I mean, the U.S. has done everything it can uh, over the years to weaken uh, the U.N. Charter and its prohibitions on wars of aggression. It's done everything to weaken the International Criminal Court. 
Um, yeah, and then it complains that international law is not being uh, followed. But uh, the U.S. has really made sure that we do live in a world in which the law only applies to the weak and the strong essentially do as they will. Next, uh, another uh, interesting case is the case of Stephen Donziger, and uh, Stephen Donziger is an uh, is a is a uh, an attorney who had some success, unfortunately for him, uh, against uh, Chevron in South America, and Chevron went after him um, back here, and they've had some success going after him. And there's now he's written an article: the Supreme Court orders the Department of Justice to explain why it let Chevron prosecute me, and it wasn't the U.S. government that prosecuted him; it was in fact Chevron. Your thoughts on this, uh, Dan Cavalli? Yeah, it's a very strange case, and I, I'm not sure there's ever been one like it. Uh, as he mentions, somehow Chevron was allowed to essentially criminally prosecute him, and he was held uh, under house arrest uh, for a significant amount of time. Uh, as a result of the case that Chevron brought, uh, there were a lot of conflicts of interest in the case favoring Chevron. And yeah, essentially he was punished for bringing a meritorious claim against Chevron for the environmental and human damage it did in Ecuador. What does it say to you, if anything, that this particular Supreme Court has held in the manner that it has uh, basically challenging the corporate interests that so many of those justices are beholden to. Yeah, well, it's going to be interesting to see, uh, you know, how the case ends up resolving. But I think, you know, there's something positive about the Supreme Court at least questioning what the Department of Justice did. Um, you know, that gives me a little hope. Now, of course, some of it is probably political. This was done uh, under, well, it was done under both Trump and Biden, I would say. So I wouldn't say it was a purely uh, Democratic Department of Justice that did this, but most recently they've been carrying the ball against Donziger. So I, I imagine that might have something to do with the Supreme Court's decision. But in any case, uh, I th look, I think the case was so outrageous that had the Supreme Court not raised some questions to this, then we'd have to believe there was absolutely no rule of law in this country. So, so it's positive. Speaking of absolutely no rule of law in this country, doctors renew call for Assange's release after COVID infection. Doctors for, for Assange sent a letter to United States Attorney General Merrick Garland and the United Kingdom Home Secretary Suella Braverman, although that's subject to change on any given day, yet again expressing their concern about the deteriorating health of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Your thoughts? Yeah, no, this Assange case is a very troubling one. This poor man has been held in terrible conditions now for many years. Um, his parents have claimed that his, his both his mental and physical health are deteriorating due to this confinement, at times in solitary confinement. And again, why? Because he exposed uh, war crimes um, of the West, of the US and, and, and the UK in particular. And he is being punished. I mean, he is 
probably the lead example that the U.S. in particular wants to set uh, to show what will happen to people who expose its crimes. It's, it really is a terrible story. And equally terrible is the fact that the mainstream press has largely abandoned um, him and, uh, and forgotten about his case. And there seems to be a lot more traction around this now. There's a documentary that's just been released, and you now, uh, as a uh, as stated in this in this piece, a doctor. There's an organization, Doctors for Assange, an international coalition of of different types of doctors, over 300 of them, psychiatrists, psychologists, and other medical professionals. And the United States is still ignoring the outcry. Uh, what does this say to you about how tone deaf uh, Joe Biden is on this when the president that he served under had decided not to pursue the case? Yeah, well, it does show he's very tone deaf, um, that he doesn't care either about the rule of law or about the life of of a man like uh, Assange. Uh, but again, I mean, the truth is this this case, while Assange has many supporters, certainly including uh, supporters who are able to uh, create a human chain around Westminster last weekend, um, there just hasn't been enough media attention shining a light, light on this case. I do think had the mainstream media been giving this daily coverage like it deserves, uh, uh, maybe the Biden administration would act differently. But as it is, I, I don't think he feels any political cost in continuing this case against Assange. You know, uh, uh, I think I, the reason I put these these particular cases together is I think they're all lawfare. They're all really crimes of empire. If you look at Donziger, what did he do? His crime was in Ecuador. He sued, a, a, you know, he was successful in making a an American, you know, international conglomerate pay for the damage that they caused. Julian Assange, he exposed the crimes of the empire, but he didn't even do it on U.S. soil. The U.S. has no authority to prosecute him. And Alex Saab, Alex Saab is a diplomat. He has diplomatic immunity. And furthermore, even if he had had done what the U.S. accused him of, of money laundering, it would be in Venezuela, and it would be Venezuela's uh, a prerogative whether or not to prosecute him. So these are all crimes where... It clearly demonstrates that the U.S. is an empire that thinks it controls the world. But even the people that it's attacking for, uh, it's attacking, it's attacking for exposing the empire or going against the diktats of the empire. Dan. Yeah, well, it's true. And as you say, it is incredible how the U.S. thinks its law reaches everywhere in the world um, that, yes, that it could go after a non-U.S. Uh, citizen f for treason somehow. I mean, uh, Assange owes no loyalty to the United States or its flag. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, it's going after a diplomat who has immunity in, in Alex Saab. Um, I mean, the U.S., I think, is trying to make a point that it can act anywhere it wants in any way and that there is no law to stop it. I mean, I think that's part of part of uh, the reason they're doing what they're doing here. It's resonating around the world. Uh, it's obvious that the empire is on the wane. 
And so whether it's China, whether it's Russia, whether it's Venezuela, whether it's Iran, the Saudis, they're, they're, they're all looking at this saying the emperor has no clothes. Yeah, well, I think that's true. And even now, I think people in the West are seeing that. I mean, look what's happening in Europe. France is on fire. I mean, there may be a revolution in France. The prime minister of, of Great Britain has fallen. Liz Truss. Um, I think that uh, what we're seeing is the West is now collapsing under its own corruption. Now, of course, the U.S. has not seen that sort of, um, uh, you know, unrest in the streets over these types of issues. Uh, But I'd like to believe that's coming here as well. Well, the other thing is, if we look at um, what's happening in Europe, what's happening here, it's because the government is not looking out for the needs of the people. And I believe that in, even though, let's face it, the Republicans are no picnic by any stretch of the imagination, the Democrats are about to get pasted in the middle and the midterms in what I think will be an example of people saying, you're not looking out for our interests and we're not going to support you, Dan. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, I think when the story of these midterm elections is written, I think it will be that the American people said no to this war in Ukraine and uh, said that they wanted money to be spent here at all instead. You know, I think, again, the mainstream press won't write it that way, but I think that is the true story of, of what's happening here. I think I think the Democrats are going to get punished hard for what they've done uh, vis-a-vis Ukraine and uh, and failing the American people. Yeah, and of course, the Democrat, Hillary Clinton will come out and say they lost because they went too far to the left. As always, Dan, Dan Kovalik is a writer. He's an author, a lawyer, and activist. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Right-wing activists are going to the Supreme Court to try and stop student debt relief. Also, protests in 40 U.S. cities demand an es- de-escalation as polls show that Americans are concerned about nuclear war. Joining us now to discuss these stories and more, we have Gary Flowers. Gary's a radio, t- radio talk show host and public policy analyst. Gary Flowers, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks so much for the invitation. Well, the Republicans are already saying they're all in for austerity. Our first article is a Common Dreams article. It says millions set to lose Medicaid food benefits once when the public health emergency ends. Many individuals and families will experience the cumulative impact of losing access to both Medicaid and SNAP. And looking forward with everything we're seeing, the Republicans are looking like they're all in for austerity. Biden hadn't been doing but so much. Your thoughts, Gary Flowers. We see this wave in American history where uh, every 20 years uh, or so there is a move toward austerity as though uh, the poor are the problem. And the poor, the most vulnerable in this society, are usually the ones who bear the most uh, brunt of an economic slowdown. Uh, While the wealthy uh, get wealthier, 
And this is not only ungodly and immoral, but it's un-American. You know, one of the things that's very interesting, and it says this in the piece, is that HHS Secretary Javier Becerra announced an extension of the public emergency, health public health emergency, until January 11th, but it's not clear whether the administration is planning another renewal. And this isn't something that takes congressional action. This is something that just requires Joe Biden to step up and do the types of things that Joe Biden promised he would do when he was running for president. So this and really so shows—go ahead. I'm so glad you brought this up, Dr. Leon, because this is a willful um, step and stab toward the poor by a Democratic administration that not only promised to do contrary, but their their tradition on public policy on paper has been to look out for the poor and the vulnerable. This reminds me of the Parent PLUS loan that President Barack Obama essentially raised the stakes and the uh, criteria so that fewer black children could go to college. It baffles me. Uh, But then again, it doesn't. (laughs) That Joe Biden is staying to his roots of being essentially a Republican in Democratic clothing. And, you know, Gary, the other thing, the first thing I thought about when I read this, okay, they're cutting money to the poor at a time when the economy is going bad, things are getting worse, people need it more than ever. But a few months ago, they the, the PPP loans, which were like a billion or billions, I forgot how many billions of dollars it was. And I remember looking, and all of these like Tom Brady and uh, some of the Kardashians and Kanye West, all of these people got loans for literally millions of dollars And the government just wiped it out, just said, oh, you know what? We're going to forgive all of that kind of stuff. But when a few dollars, like some people are going to get $82 a month cut. We can't afford $82 for a poor person, but literally billions of dollars have been wiped out in PPP loans. It's a month less. We are weeks away from a midterm, and they're wondering why they're about to get crushed. Gary. I think it's predictable, and I'm, I'm glad you raised the point as well. It is as though the Democratic Party uh, forms a circle like they used to circle the wagons, but they shoot inwardly as opposed to outwardly. And if you say that the poor and you have one big tent as a political party uh, and you look out for the least of these, but yet your public policy does not, uh, is, is one level of absurdity. But two weeks before the midterm election, If I were poor, why would I come out and vote for a Democrat? And here's one of the things that they tout. They talk about the number of children that were taken out of poverty or lifted out of poverty based upon these programs. And now what they write is once uh, this this, uh, public emergency is allowed to lapse, it's estimated that 15 million people, including 5 million children, could lose their health coverage in the midst of, we're still in the midst of a deadly pandemic. And I'll also add this and ask you to respond. This all sounds eerily reminiscent to Joe Biden saying on the campaign trail that he was going to see to it that Roe v. Wade 
would be codified in federal federal policy. And now that the Dobbs case has been passed, you have Joe Biden saying again, vote us back because you need us to be sure that Roe becomes policy, uh, becomes law, federal law. Well, Joe, you didn't do it the first time you had it. You're probably not going to do it now. Yeah, that that seems to be a, a carrot that's been dangled out uh, partly for political purposes, if not mainly for political purposes, to say to young white women particularly, vote in the midterms uh, because I'm going to make Roe policy. Uh, but I don't think, like you are um, apprehensive, I don't think that that Joe Biden actually means that. He's been known to speak with fork tongue over and over and over again when he wasn't plagiarizing someone else's uh, writings. And so I have little to no confidence that he will make that policy. Another article, um, again, Common Dreams. Protests in 40-plus cities demand de-escalation as polls show surging fear of nuclear war. Anyone paying attention should be worried about the rising dangers of nuclear war, but what we really need is action, said one organizer. And what, I, what I'm seeing in my various journalism uh, 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 you know, uh, adventures is this. More and more people are saying, look— I don't want to hear about who's right or who's wrong or anything else. You know, we all have our positions on it. People are saying this is very concerning. It's beginning a it's becoming a danger to all of our lives, our families, our friends. We need to de-escalate. The other thing too, to go back to the first one, people are saying, why is all this money going to Lockheed Martin or whoever to buy drones and this and that? We need money for food. People want a change of direction. Your thoughts? I think you hit it right on the on the point. Uh, the the military-industrial complex and those who are profiteering from war uh, in this country, the Lockheed Martins, the Boeings, uh, the Northrop Grumman's, have made astronomical profits uh, in the last 20 years. And what is happening in Ukraine is just another surge for profits. And with the threat that there could be nuclear warfare uh, coming about. I I doubt if that will happen. I think it it is a scare tactic to sell more arms. The United States of America, as we've discussed before on this show, is the number one arms dealer on the planet. We sell more ballistic missiles and more pistols and assault rifles than any other country. The broader question, posed by Bob Marley out of the Bible is, is there a place in heaven for the hopeless sinner who sinned against mankind just to save his own? And to that, it, it, to me, it begs the question, where is the left? Because I'm old enough to remember the late 60s and the early 70s when there was a incredibly active, vocal, substantial peace movement that was in the streets raising hell. And I see it sporadically now. I don't see the same disruptive forces that I saw uh, 40 years ago. Well, that's interesting as well, because those who were in the streets 40 and 50 years ago 
uh, with brown or black hair now have silver hair, and they have moved to suburbia. They raise their children on all sorts of luxuries, and in that transmuted or inculcated to their children the need for vigilance in the streets. And so we now have a generation going on a second that is numb and uh, not present. And that's dangerous because that void, I contend, has led to the chasm that has allowed uh, neo-fascists like Donald Trump to consume uh, that, that space. Another article we'd like to get to, and again, Common Dreams, refused by lower courts, right-wing groups asked SCOTUS to stop student debt relief, noting that district and appeals courts rejected the group's request. One analyst projected that this case is not going anywhere. However, a record number of Americans don't trust the high court, and that's the situation we're in now, and I think the issue of student debt relief is very significant, for, particularly for people in the African-American community who end up, as I always say, they're 23 years old, they got a house payment, and no house. Gary, your thoughts? Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's tragic uh, that the issue of student debt um, relief was dangled, and then for the most part, the little bit that, that Joe Biden has done is not consequential to a lot of people. Some would say, well, it's better than nothing. I always say it's also next to nothing. <laughs> and the, what we know about politics is when you're in elective office, you have to make uh, as much change as you can because it's no guarantee that your party will stay in office, allowing you to have more time to make policy and progressive policy, you know, manifest. It's also uh, very important here to go back to, once again, what Joe Biden promised initially was debt relief and free college. Then he compromised, and really, he compromised, or, or, or what do they say, hustled backwards. He <laughs> compromised against himself because he cut his own recommendation without anybody really demanding that he do so to uh, free junior college and this forgiveness of $20,000. So he's doing a lot of Barack Obama-esque negotiating, negotiating against himself when nobody's holding a gun to his head, forcing him to do anything. And by the way, he has control of the House and the Senate. I'm so glad you brought up President Obama because the Employee Free Choice Act uh, that would have been in place uh, in 2008 to help uh, working people in this country, President Obama started negotiations from the middle of the table. The same with health care. There was no public option. And so it is the same centrist uh, Democratic movie that we've seen before. Who in the world would ever think it's commonsensical to negotiate against yourself. And that is what we get. And that's why we need, and I've said it before, but I'm going to keep saying it, brothers, we need more than two political parties. Because with only two political parties and a winner-take-all system, you have one party that is absolutely uh, very clear on their stance for the wealthy, and you have another party that fakes left and goes right. That's a good point. And exactly your point. If you know, if I say if I forgive a dollar, the Republicans are going to go crazy. If I forgive all of it, they're going to go just as crazy. At that point, you might as well forgive all of it. 
Exactly. Uh, the, the, uh, 45 seconds, uh, uh, Gary. No, I, I think that's, that's the point. You, and, and we, we're looking at the baseball playoffs now. Okay, when you get to the plate, for the most part, the sluggers, the ones who, who can hit home runs, attempt to hit home runs every time they're at the plate. The Democrats say they want to hit home runs for the poor and the vulnerable and the left out. Uh, and yet, they bunt the ball more than anything else. I know I'm using baseball vernacular, but it's so true for the Democratic Party, and it's so disappointing. Um, but we have to do better by having – I'm an abolitionist. We have to abolish the current political system and reform it so that it does speak to the left out and the, um, and the locked out. Gary Flowers is a radio talk show host and public policy analyst. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The Organization of American States, also known as the OAS, is losing power as Latin America turns away from U.S. imperialism. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we've got Ricardo Vaz. He's a political analyst and an editor at a great website that I highly recommend. It's VenezuelaAnalysis.com. Ricardo, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Great article at Venezuelan.com, Around the World in 60 Days, the OAS and Guaido's death knell. The opposition leader's, quote, international recognition charade no longer holds even in Washington aligned forums. Your thoughts, Ricardo Vaz? Yeah, this was a very interesting development in the OAS of all places. Uh, I could be tempted to say how the mighty have fallen, but Guaido wasn't very mighty to begin with, but still, it's, it's very striking that uh, even a forum like the OAS, which has historically, uh, by design, even been very uh, aligned with U.S. interests, even even such a such a setting has had enough of this uh, Guaido charade, and they were preparing to expel the quote unquote ambassador. We have to put uh, air quotes in everything here. <laughs> uh, Guaido's ambassador to the OAS. It's 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 because the Venezuela left the OAS in in 2019 because the OAS was just a, a meddling mechanism, constantly trying to push for a coup and legitimizing talk of a foreign intervention. And then once the this self-proclaimed interim presidency began, Guaido appointed a, an ambassador to the OAS, and because it had a, a right-wing majority, he was accepted, and he had been there since. A funny story uh, when we were reporting in, in the early of the of the Guaido experiment, we always refer to him as self-proclaimed interim president because I mean that's a uh, factual description. And this uh, this guy Gustavo Tarre, uh, the Guaido's ambassador to the OAS, wrote us an email to us at Venezuela Analysis, uh, suggesting or threatening in in, in so many words, uh, telling us not to to refer to Guaido as, as self-proclaimed. And we thought it was it was funny that he had nothing better to do than go after independent media outlets to tell him not to refer to his boss as self-proclaimed, even though he proclaimed himself. But it goes to show how little credibility Guaido has in the international setting, which was at some point the only place where he 
could still command some kind of credibility or following. And then, of course, very soon, there's always a, a U.S. official. In this case, it was Assistant Secretary Brian Nichols uh, reiterating that the U.S. Uh, still recognizes him, even though not even U.S.-aligned governments in the region are, are happy about it. And it's interesting, in your piece, you write about a powerful media operation working in tandem with strong diplomatic, economic, military, and political pressure announcing the imminent overthrow of Maduro. It's the media element of this that jumped out at me because historically we can go all the way back to the overthrow of Mohammed Mossadegh in Iran in 53. The United States, the CIA, they use the media. Uh, they, 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 they plant stories. They develop so-called sources to create this alternative universe that they report on and they use that as the basis of galvanizing support for uh, for their intrigue, a- as well as turning the tide against against the leader. Uh, talk about, and particularly with you being at Ven- Venezuelan Analysis, the power of the media in situations like this. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting and a very relevant example that you bring up, because Iran 1953 was, in a way, the, a prototype for all the CIA coups that we would see uh, essentially in the in the next 20 years. And then, of course, they continued, but they kind of changed shape. So the media was always a key component of the, of the Guaido experiment. And you had an increasing disconnect between the media description and reality on the ground. You had this constant frenzy that somehow the overthrow of, of the government was imminent and that Guaido commanded huge popular support. And that really had no... A correlation with the events on the ground because the component that was missing was precisely this infiltration in the military that the, the U.S. managed in other places like Iran or Chile. And here it didn't. And so little by little, the, the Guaido story started descending into farce. And we have something that's really a circus, something that only exists in the imagination of, of U.S. officials. Yet every now and then the media uh, does its best to to, to give Guaido a, a lift or a push, even though he has lost all credibility, if he had any to begin with. Next article, and here's another one again. It's from VenezuelaAnalysis.com. Venezuelan migrants in disarray after Biden expands Title 42 expulsions. Migrants' rights defenders have long called the White House to end its use of Title 42, which effectively denies migrants the legal right to seek asylum in the U.S. And I've got to add this. After Biden said, joke, President Biden said they were going to take in 100,000 Ukrainian immigrants, no questions asked. This has to be a bit of a a stab in the back. Your thoughts on this article, uh, Ricardo? Yeah, I mean, it's it's also very uh, interesting that somehow the the Democratic Party can be just as anti-immigrant as the Republicans and, and as Trump. But they never get the bad publicity. So this, the TPS, the Temporary Protective uh, Status that uh, Trump gave to Venezuelans, was in a way uh, kind of a lifeline of political relevance for the Venezuelan opposition, so that they could say that the, you know the fact that the fact of them being internationally recognized had some benefits. So at least Venezuelans who were in U.S. soil could could stay there. But then, you know, Biden can just revert all of that. So in that sense, uh, he hasn't changed anything when it comes to sanctions. He has clamped down on migration. So he is, in a way, 
having an even more hardline policy against Venezuela than Trump, yet he doesn't have the the bad publicity. I'm not saying that, that Trump wasn't fairly judged. I'm saying that the, the, the corporate media is very much uh, more lenient towards towards Democrats. But this was, I mean, regardless of, of, of the migration and all the media manipulation surrounding it, this was very harsh because uh, the U.S. even expelled Venezuelans who were already inside U.S. territory. And now they are in Mexico. They don't know what to do. Mexico also says that they have to leave. So this was really something sudden. I'm not sure if this was a concession to the Hawks, to the Florida, the Hawks ahead of, of, the, of the election or all the, the anti-immigrant uh, caucus ahead of the midterm elections. But the fact of the matter is that uh, this quote, they're going to accept 24,000 Venezuelan migrants, which is next to nothing. The conditions are also close to impossible to meet. So it really is just shutting the door and which which is in, in, in direct contradiction with this uh, discourse. I mean, we saw a couple of weeks ago this uh, White House press secretary, I don't know where they find these people, saying that there were hundreds of thousands fleeing communism and, and yet somehow it doesn't seem like such a serious problem right now. In fact, th- that was actually my question. My next question, White House spokesperson Corinne Jean-Pierre says that the migrants being expelled are fleeing communism, and then they've also used the narrative of they're fleeing the repressive regime of Nicolas Maduro, whereas I understand it, Maduro isn't a communist, and his regime isn't repressive. That this is really a response to U.S. sanctions and the impact that that U.S. sanctions are having on the Venezuelan economy the same way that U.S. policy has decimated the economy in El Salvador and so many other countries in the region. Indeed, that's absolutely true that U.S. sanctions have made the economic situation very difficult here, even though there's been a modest recovery in in recent months. So migration is uh, essentially driven by people who are looking for uh, you know, a way to, to, to make a living and to send something back to their relatives. In the beginning, there was a kind of political migration, mostly from middle-class sectors. It wasn't driven by repression. It was just driven by their own uh, racism and, and class hatred, the fact that they couldn't stand living uh, under, under Chavismo. But now it's very much an economic migration in which, as you were saying, that the U.S. is, is very uh, responsible, directly responsible by introducing these measures, which are by design meant to strangle the Venezuelan economy, make life, life difficult for everyone in the, in the hopes that somehow that will lead to, to regime change. So now not only has this not worked in terms of, of achieving its goal, it has indeed made life difficult for everyone. And now the U.S. Uh, to, to make matters even worse. Uh, clamps down on migration at the border. There's a, a number of articles on Alex Saab, but uh, Roger Harris wrote a great one, Why the U.S. Imprisoned Venezuelan Diplomatic, Diplomat Alex Saab, and he goes on to say, commentary by Washington insiders corroborates that Saab's crime was trying to obtain humanitarian supplies in legal international trade, but in circumvention of the illegal U.S. sanctions on Venezuela. Your thoughts on the plight of Alex Saab? Actually, there has been there have been some developments on on the Alex Saab case in in recent days. Essentially, the, the defense is filing for dismissal because uh, all 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 the U.S. case 
uh, rests on, you know, regardless of whether the accusations have merit or not, it rests on, on his diplomatic immunity. So the U.S. says that it, he doesn't have diplomatic immunity and the, the, his defense and the Venezuelan has submitted documents that prove not only did he have uh, a diplomatic passport when he was arrested in, in when he was illegally seized in Cape Verde in mid 2020, but U.S. officials were aware that he had diplomatic immunity. In fact, they released an email from Elliot Abrams to some other official. I mean, uh, Abrams, if you recall, was working at the White House at the time, and Abrams himself says that do about this kind of recognized immunity and so on. So it shows that uh, uh, even even in Washington, they were aware that he was, uh, as you were saying, a key asset to circumvent sanctions. In this, in this case, he was on his way to Iran to secure, uh, first of all, fuel and then other supplies, food and so on, because this was really the worst time of the economic crisis. And so the U.S. Uh, knew the, the strategic value of seizing him. But in terms of there's really married to him. So now they're just uh, playing for time. They have postponed the hearing several times. Now it's going to be in December, supposedly. And my guess is that they're just trying to use him as a pawn in, in negotiations with the Maduro government. Ricardo Vaz is a political analyst and editor at VenezuelaAnalysis.com. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you are informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We are out. 